welcome back to the Grown Up Girls Report podcast. It is book club week. Every second week, as you know, is book club week on the podcast. And we have got a book that is long overdue to discuss with you today. But before we get into the book, I'm going to introduce my co-host, who is an old friend of the podcast, the lovely Kate Walker. Hi, Kate. Hi, Alex. Lovely to be back. How are you? Very well, thank you. Oh, yes. <laughs> Kate, because we did last year that book, A Gentleman in Moscow. We, did. we certainly did. And that was um, quite the weighty tone, wasn't it? <laughs> it was, Kate. In fact, it was probably a standout for me. If I look back at all the books we did in 2020, that would have to be in my top five books. It was incredible. Yep, I agree. I agree. And this one today is um, certainly very different, but uh, equally weighty in some ways, I think. Oh, I agree, Kate. Equally weighty and really important. And I reckon it's going to be one of those books that becomes a bit of a classic. Mm, I I actually don't disagree with you on that. I I can see that happening. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So without further ado, Kate, why don't you introduce the book today? Sure. Okay. So today's book, uh, Dear Book Club listeners, is uh, by the very talented Tara June Winch. And the title of the book is called The Yield. Uh, and uh, you may uh, have heard about this book or you may have even read it, um, and it's really a, a multi-award winning book uh, by all accounts. So yes. um, certainly, uh, and quite honestly, in my experience, sometimes such books don't live up to the hype, uh, but in this instance I think the hype is quite well-deserved. Yes, Kate, I agree. And to be honest, that's one of the reasons I had I'd put it off because I have I have actually heard mixed reviews. I've got friends who've read it and thought it was just incredible and others that were a bit overwhelmed by it perhaps. But I am so glad we've read it. I just think it's um I think it's quite quite an incredible book. The only thing I will I will say is that when I started reading it, and I and I do tend to read under pressure, I read this in a in a day, half a day, is I found it a little hard to get into. I'm going to be honest. It took me a little mm-hmm. while to, mm-hmm. I suppose, fall into the rhythm of the book. But when I was in and when I when I realised what it was about, you know, the preserving language and um, family and sense of belonging and 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 obviously, you know, um, for me, very much uh, filling the gaps in my limited knowledge of our First Nations people, I'm going to be very, mm. very honest, um, I was all in. Mm. But it did take me probably 50 pages. Yes, it's written, and we'll get into this more in the, in the podcast, but certainly, yes, I agree, because it's really got three stories intertwining with one, it does it does throw you a little bit in terms of um, the structure of the book. But then once you're into it, it does. It's, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Now, before we get into it, Kate, the title, The Yield. So this yeah. was really interesting, and I didn't actually think much about this till after I'd finished reading it. So in English, obviously, you know, the yield means the reaping, the things that that we or the man can take from the land. But in the Wiradjuri language, which we must also mention is a very important part of, excuse me, this book, um, Tara June Winch is actually descendant of the Wiradjuri people and the, the language is, is very much um, a key feature of this book. The yield means something quite different. It's the things that you give to. It's the things that you give back and the space between things. So I thought that was really interesting. That's right. And I think she sort of goes on to say that really this is a novel full of spaces in between, which I think is quite yes. interesting. So it really is. She does. It's talking about, I think, the um, if like the timelessness um, of the dream time. Do you know what I mean? It's got no beginning, no end. It is just there. It's here. It was there and it's now. It's timeless. Yeah, so I think that's um, something really interesting. But, no, look, I think the yield is quite a clever 
way of looking at it because obviously from the English perspective, we talk about the yield as in what you get from the land, what the land produces for you um, and what you take from the land and the things that you wait to claim from the land, uh, which of course has some very interesting double meanings when you look at it from the perspective of First Nations people. So um, yeah, absolutely. It's quite clever. No, I thought that was really clever. I thought that was really clever. So why did we choose this book? Well, it was my suggestion. I said, Kate, we've got to do it. And you seemed like the logical person, Kate, because can and we'll get to Kate's rich, rich history and rich journey <laughs> of life. But I think that really adds to this, Kate, your perspective, which we'll we'll get to later. But look, the reason why I, I, I thought it just had to be done is that look, it won the 2020 Miles Franklin Award. And to me, I think it's very important that if we're going to do this book club thing, we've got to at least got to make sure we weave in the Miles Franklin Award win every year. And it hadn't been done. Um, but look, just, just while we're talking about the awards, not only did it win the Miles Franklin Award, it also won the 2020 New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, uh, the Christina Stead Prize for Fiction, the People's Choice Award and the Book of the Year. So it has been uh, quite quite incredible. Actually, talking about the Miles Franklin Award for 2021, it is, I don't know if you've actually read it, Kate, The Labyrinth by Tasmanian author Amanda Laurie. Oh, yes. My mum has read it and um, she and I were having a very good discussion about what a labyrinth actually was um, in yes. as large as this book. So, yes, I haven't read it, but she's read it for her book club and we uh, and I have, I'm aware of it, but not read it yet. So, yeah. yes. Mm. No, say mm. one at a time. I say oh, one at a time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we'll get to it. We'll get to it. And as I said before, another reason why I was really keen to, to read this is because, you know, people, I mean, I'm, I'm fresh, fresh, freshly 50 and a lot of people of, of our generation, Kate, and I'm sure you probably will attest to this, is that when we were doing history at school, there was such a big gap in the knowledge. Mm. And I just feel like I owe it to myself and to my kids to, to try and, you know, fill those blanks. Mm. And I think reading books like this, whilst fictional, <laughs> deeply rooted in, 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 in history and deeply mm. rooted in experience is just such a great way of doing so. So mm. that mm. was why I thought we had to do it. Fair enough, fair enough. And funnily enough, I'd actually just finished reading, just before you sent me this book, uh, a very interesting book by Thomas Keneally called The Dickens Boy, um, which is ah. really a, a historical fiction, well, yeah, historical fiction, but based upon, yeah, based upon uh, two, of, two of his sons, including his younger son, uh, Edward Plorn Dickens, uh, who, he, who Charles Dickens sent to Australia back in the 1860s and 70s, um, and he ended up... Um, slightly further west than where this book is set, um, basically out at Wilcannia in western New South Wales. And he writes uh, about the true story of the Bonnie family, uh, Frank Bonnie, who was a photographer, which I believe back in the 1880s, 1890s, whatever it was. And he and he was avidly um, uh, uh, respectful and um, very um, really treated the Aboriginal um, tribes on his land very, very kindly. Um, and was very interested. He learned the language um, and he took photographs of them and things like that. And those photographs survive today. So um, having just read that, which really talked about, um, really referenced, you know, the, the local Aboriginal people in that region, which was not the Wiradjuri people, but a different tribal group, but uh, the interactions yeah. with um, white settlers and how distressing, uh, and they talk very graphically in this book uh, about massacres and things like that. So actually reading this book straight after that was actually quite interesting because it really, I suppose, um, cemented a lot of the things that uh, were discussed and and quite factually so in the previous book. So um, I thought that was quite interesting. Two very different books, but um, and yet both very um, uh, informative and educational about First Nations peoples. Absolutely, Kate. Mm. Perfect timing just quietly. Yeah, Perfect it was. timing. Yeah. It was. yeah. 
Absolutely. So, look, let's talk about Tara June Winch. So, she is the author of this book. So, as we said before, she is a Wiradjuri writer, but, now, but she's actually not based in Australia. She is based in, I hope I'm going to say it correctly, Nantes. Would you say Nantes in France, Kate? How do you think Nantes? my pronunciation is it, went? It's N-A-N-T-E-S. Yeah. Is it nonce? I don't know. Nonce. I've got no idea. Nonce. I'm just making that up. Look, I don't know. <laughs> you, you, I don't know. We're going to call it, we're going to go, let's go nonce is slightly. I think I'm going to actually prefer your pronunciation. Let's go with that, my friend. So she has a French husband and a teenage daughter, and she's been living there for quite some time. Mm. So I actually hadn't heard of uh, nonce before. I just go with that. But it's, oh my God, Kate, it's stunning. Oh, really? It's stunning. Oh. It's got the Loire River runs through it and mm. it's described as the Venice of the West and um, it's just gorgeous. Oh, so gosh. it's in, in Brittany, I suppose, where Brittany used to be. So, okay. um, yeah, anyway, oh, gorgeous, gorgeous. Anyway, but this is her third book. Have, yes. you, have you read any of her others? No, no, no. I wasn't aware of her as an author really until now. So, um, no, I confess I haven't, but uh, I'd be happy to, to do so. Yeah, I would be too. You know, and I was thinking, when, I, when obviously when I came across this book, I thought, oh, my God, the name, the name, the name. I know this name. I know this name. And then I had this moment, Kate, where I remembered, and I, and I, and I wonder, you probably have in your preparation for this come across it, the whole hoo-ha with Andrew Bolt in 2009. Oh, I don't know if you're familiar with no, this. No, this? This is how, then this is how it all came back to me. So, so in 2009, the uh, the very conservative Andrew mm. Bolt, who writes for the you know Herald Sun and uh, Associated uh, newspapers, wrote an article called "It's So Hip to Be Black." So in this article, yeah, he named several prominent Indigenous people at the time um, who he felt had used their heritage to qualify for roles that he didn't think they deserved because they had fairer skin. And, in fact, I think the term he used was He's the arbiter of all Absolutely, Kate, 100%. No, 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 he knows all everything. Um, I think he described him as as a political Aborigine. That was his actual term. Oh, how convenient. Unbelievable. So so there was Annette Sachs, who I wasn't an artist, I wasn't a aware of, um, Tara June Winch, um, mm-hmm. Anita Hess, H-E-I-S-S. Yes, I, I know her, yes. I know her too, yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, academic Pat Etock and lawyer mm-hmm. Larissa Berhent, um, who I'd actually seen her name as well. So anyway, it was just a big to-do. Um, and her, his particular gripe with Tara June Winch was that at that stage she'd only um, published her first book, which was called Swallow the Air, and um, he was complaining that she'd been named as an ambassador for the Australia Council's Indigenous Literary, Literary, Literacy Project, rather, which didn't exist. And he said that because despite her auburn hair and charmingly freckled face, she too is an Aborigine who claims her country is Wiradjuri and that she didn't have any claim on it because of her uh, freckled, charmingly freckled face and auburn hair. So... It was outrageous. Now, the mm. academic sued, Pat Etock sued and won. Um, yep. The Herald Sun was forced to apologise, but Bolt never did. So oh, interesting. It's, it's so interesting. And then all just it's all just making sense to me. And then it's interesting because in the article, in, in when, when she's interviewed, she talks about how she had this big hiatus from, you know, the public sphere and writing for about 10 years. Mm. And mm. She was traumatized. Like she found it incredibly overwhelming. She was in New York, I think, at that stage, and she, she, I think, initially she may she may have opted into some 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 legal proceedings with Pat Etock, and then she pulled out. It was all too much, mm-hmm. but it made her feel very vulnerable and and you know very hurt and attacked. And of course, it would. Yes. Um, oh, how interesting! I know, isn't that fascinating? Oh, fascinating, gosh. actually. Yeah. Um, but he never apologized, Kate. 
So noble. Yeah. <laughs> so noble, absolutely. Yeah, so anyway, yeah, yeah. I know. So interesting. But anyway, oh, so she had 10 years off and then she came back and she wrote um then right. she she wrote the she wrote well actually she wrote the second book in 2017 um and then she wrote um the yield in, in 2019 it was 2019. actually yeah mm-hmm. yeah but you know what she mm-hmm. said just as another aside is that um excuse my language everyone she goes this is one a quote from her she goes I love writing but it, it it excuse my language is a rude word so if you've got children turn it off she goes it fucks me though I put on 35 kilos writing this book 35 kilos oh, God because she just gets so immersed and she says she had to be manic. She didn't sleep. She didn't look after her body or her health. She was just completely immersed. So Wow, that's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. I know. Yeah. And I know. a book like this really, um, uh, there's an awful lot of work that's gone into it. Like it's oh, a lot Kate. of, it's quite, quite remarkable actually. And um, the research. it reminds me of some, it reminds me of a little, you've obviously read the Dictionary of Lost Words. Yes. Um, but you know, in terms of you know compiling this, this this book does reference compiling, if you like, a, a, a Radri language dictionary. Absolutely. Um, and how difficult that is when the language is almost lost. Yeah, so um, I know. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. Oh, mm. Absolutely mm. fascinating. And in fact, mm. actually, the whole idea for the book actually came out of the first book, her first book, um, when she was at Swallow the Air, and she was she actually went back. Um, to country to try and figure out sort of who she was, and I think, and I haven't read the book, but the main character I think was was called May, and in the car- in, in the book, May was trying to work out you know her history and her relatives, and she came across um, a Radjuri language class during that time, and this a- right. yeah this A four yellow dictionary she talks about that had been published the year before right. by Uncle Stan Grant Senior, who is the father of Stan Grant. Um, and, um, and then basically, yeah. And that's how the whole idea came to be. And she really wanted to include more language, more, more Wiradjuri language in the first book, but she just didn't. And she felt full of regret. So this was very much about addressing the the importance of language and really, you know, finishing that unfinished Mm. business. So Mm. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very clever. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. um, I mean, but I won't even start to try and pronounce some of the words because. (gasps) I know. I know. And actually in my, and I initially was thinking we could actually do a little bit of an overview of the words, but I just, I'd be too embarrassing. I, I would, I would look so mm. silly and I wouldn't do the words justice. So I just. No, that's right. Yeah, exactly. To just read, read them. Absolutely. My friend, I'll even spell them. Okay. So do you want to take us through a bit of an overview of the story? And now we're not going to give any spoilers away, but just, you know, give us, give us a flavor for, for those that haven't read it because it's fascinating. Sure. Yeah, so look, the book's really written in, if you like, three narratives. Um, so you've really got three voices in the book, um, and the first book being that of um, uh, uh, August. Sorry, August is the uh, protagonist here, so that's um, assumedly Tara June Winch, but yeah, heavily inspired what you will. by. Yep, heavily inspired by. Yes, um, so she is, uh, you know, coming back. Uh, uh, I think middle-aged, younger middle-aged woman who's who's unmarried. I think she so she feels sort of. Um, uh, you know, r- rages of time, I suppose, and she's, I think, going back home to try, try and find find herself. But she, she goes back because her grandfather um, is terminally ill um, with pancreatic cancer and his name is uh, is Poppy. So um, he, Poppy Gunderwindy, and he is a Wiradjuri elder um, who has been throughout his life compiling these words so that they won't be lost. Um, and, uh, and then the third voice really in the book is Reverend Greenleaf, who seems like a um, sort of a more of a Christian missionary type um, who actually uh, founded and established and ran the uh, town mission, which, of course, um, and, and myself as Alex has 
kindly half alluded to. Um, I grew up in Western New South Wales, so um, I'm very aware of um, in many small country areas there was, um, if you like, a, a place outside town uh, which was really called the Aboriginal Missions. And, and even when I grew up in the 70s, there were still Aboriginal communities living in some of these missions which were no longer being run as missions but they certainly were um, encampments or mm. small communities um, usually on the outskirts of town or sometimes well outside town. Um, and so, uh, yes, the Reverend Greenleaf, I think, comes across as a very, uh, if, if you like, a, a a student of history, he was writing contemporaneously uh, back in the early 1900s when this when these missions were being founded, and he was, of course, part of the inadvertently, I think, for him, um, part of the government program at the time, of course, which was, um, you know, to remove children from families, uh, to you know. Um, put women into domestic servitude mm. to train people up and um, things like that. So really um, I think he, it, what came across to me very strongly was the fact that he felt he was doing it um, for initially probably for the greater good, but then I think slowly but surely he realised, and this is reflected very much in his writings, uh, what a terrible travesty it was to take people away from their culture. Yes. So you've really got three intertwining narratives here um, and they, um, you know, culminate together Um to provide you with a sense of time and place, which is the the story is set uh, in the town of um, uh, Prosperous. Yes, Prosperous, yes, yes. The town, Prosperous. Um, and the uh, mission area is called Massacre Plains. So mm. um, I felt actually both those both those um, titles I thought were a little bit, shall we say, overt. <laughs> we say? Absolutely, Kate, no, no, can I say nothing absolutely? Very, nothing, very, nothing very subtle no. about that. Um, and I sort of felt in a way for such a sophisticated book, actually, I have to say I was a bit disappointed <gasps> that she did make, put those names in because I felt the book was so sophisticated and it didn't need oh, that Kate, to be spelled out that. personally. But that was, my, that was my take on that. I sort of read it and I really wanted to do that. I know. Anyway, that's, that's beside the point. That was but interesting. I genuinely felt it was, it, it didn't need, didn't need it. No. I, I felt the book is speaks volumes by itself. It doesn't need to sort of spell it out. So, so um, obviously. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I agree. So. Absolutely. Now, you know, just, just on mm. the, the fact that it had these three separate narratives, I was mm. just thinking, I mean, you could actually almost argue that um, each of the narrative rep- represented sort of, I suppose, the past, present and future of Aboriginal culture as well. So um, yes. obviously Green- Greenleaf's letters to um, mm. now, Kate, he was, let's just clarify, he was writing those to, oh, here we are, the British Society of that's Ethnography right. in exactly 1915. Yes, that's right. And so and so he really did write, um, you know, for, for a, a lay pastor, minister, um, he wrote, I think, very um, uh in, in great depth um, about 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 the you know trials and tribulations I think of of the First Nations people it that did. he really came to to respect and, and like and um, and I think he was he was respected in return I believe and certainly he protected them when they were being threatened yes Kate um, by various um, angry men and things like that so I think he and it's inherently quite a good person um, and he I think towards the end of his life certainly what came through in the, his letters was the guilt that he was feeling oh without his, a doubt um, if you like his part his part in this um, well well known now you know. Um, 
inglorious history, shall we say. Absolutely. Perfect, perfect description, perfect Mm. description. So so he was very much the past. And then, I mean, obviously August's journey, her return back from London, her struggle with, you know, nearly turning 30. And and there was some, obviously, some some mental health issues, which were, were very apparent to me. And you know, and obviously the other thing that became becomes apparent is that her, her sister, who she was very close to, died many, many years ago, but this was a trauma that had been never really properly dealt with. So she was very much and living the present day, I suppose, and, and also she was very mm. much at the fore of, um, and we didn't actually mention it, so th- the fact that there's a, a tin mine that is was, was basically going to be taking over this, this land that up until recently was Aboriginal land because of some some very sort of uh, small legality. And um, and she was very much at the, at, at, at the fore of trying to address this and, 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 and rectify to get it overturned. So she was very much living the present. And then you could also argue that um, Poppy's dictionary was possibly the mm. future of um, Aboriginal culture. Oh, that's you know? actually really interesting. Yeah. You're right. I think you can make that argument because in some ways, of course, it's capturing yes. the language, which is ancient. Yes an ancient language and yet he's really preserving it. The dictionary preserves it for the yeah. future. I think that's the point. And Kate, yeah. I loved mm. the fact that, well, and, and, and the word dictionary probably doesn't probably do it quite justice, his chapters, because it's almost, it's written in such a beautiful, warm tone. It's almost like we're having a yarn where, you know, he's, he's, he's injecting his own mm. little personal anecdotes and he's really peppering the, the, the definitions of words with little stories that help us better understand the overall story, obviously, and, and some of August's um, struggles and, and trials and tribulations. It's done in such a beautiful way. Gosh, I thought that was clever. I really did. Yeah, it really was. I, I was it was very layered. I thought it was a really clever, clever um, you know, narrative, the way it's all structured together. It's, it's sort of it's interesting when you look at these three disparate stories to a degree and then you see them all intertwining together. Uh, obviously, Poppy and August. Um, Gundawindi's um, story is is, is um, related because they are granddaughter and and, um, and grandfather. Um, but then to weave also in the narrative from the Reverend as well, I thought was quite clever. That's so clever. Um, yeah, no, it was really good. And look, I think the other thing too, it's full of quite contemporary issues because when you're dealing yes. with a, and this is quite a contemporary issue for for uh, many people in rural, rural and regional Australia, is um, dealing with mining. Of course, Absolutely. you know, mining on the land um, and even looking at the news this week about Rio Tinto destroying the caves in um, outback, I think it's Western Australia yep. somewhere. Um, so things like that. So so there is this, I suppose, constant conflict between, um, you know, First Nations people's um, uh, heritage, their, their land, uh, what that means to them, any sacred sites they might have, and, of course, then the mines which are, you know, um, therefore, prosperity. Yes, it's prosperous. Exactly. Um, you know, there for the great. Exactly. So it's quite fascinating to sort of. There's a huge dichotomy that's very, very present today. Yes. Uh, in various parts of Australia, um, and so there's always the mining versus uh, the ecology, mining versus um, the heritage, so the know, history, uh, heritage. Exactly. Oh. History. Exactly. Right. And of course, and mining versus farming as well. Yes, the use of, of course. Land as well. And of course, what they do reference in the book here which is, um, have you read Dark Emu by, by Bruce Pascoe? Do you know what? I, I haven't, but I have it in my bookshelf. Have you yes, read okay. it? No, no, mm. I haven't, but I've read a lot about it, both positive yes, and negative. I. Yes, and, uh, yep, and the whole positive cons- and negative case. Exactly. And I think the controversial part of his book, I believe, is, is his um, uh, 
discussion about if, whether or not they were actually farming or not. And certainly this book yes. references uh, the fact that they that they were considered to be farming because they were in the one place and they did use the land to grow uh, types of wheat and things like that. Um, so, uh, I mean, I've got no comment to make on, on the veracity of those claims either way, but uh, it's, no, interesting how it's interesting how it was referenced here because certainly I think that concept for many of us who have grown up with a certain degree of knowledge about um, First Nations peoples and, and you know, the dream time and um, life before settlement. Um, I think that was probably new for many of us and something to be, you know, further investigated and, and looked at and I think Bruce Pascoe's done a great job putting it all together in this quite weighty book from all, from all accounts. So, um, and very well regarded. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. And she does refer to that in this book as she well. She does. So, yeah, I thought it was quite interesting and very, um, you know, I, mean, I suppose, look, from my own perspective, Growing up where I did, uh, I grew up in the, I can proudly say, um, the uh, Gamilaroi country, um, and so and from a young age though I was aware of that because we were all, we were told often about um, the Red Chief and certain Aboriginal elders who were quite um, legendary and remarkable. Um, we were told about um, uh, various landmarks which were important to Aboriginal people. The local school houses in our schools were all named after different Aboriginal groups and things like that. Gosh, so, Kate. Mm, yeah, so that's I mean, actually. Can I just say that's mm. so different to what I thought you were going to tell me? I'm so right. impressed with yeah, that. Yeah, no, and and even even to the point where we would um, occasionally, because where I grew up, there were no rocks or stones to be found in the Great Western Plains there, um, yep. Northwest Plains, uh, and very very occasionally we would find um, we'd dig up old. Aboriginal carving tools and, and knives and cutting tools and things like that, which you know, we, which we would look at. And so, and my dad would say, "Oh, look, that's that's an Aboriginal carving stick," and blah blah blah. And we'd, we'd find them um, around the place occasionally. So, um, and certainly, I grew up, you know, with Aboriginal um, you know, friends at school and things like that. So for me, it's um, it, I suppose I, upon reflection, I probably had a maybe a, a slightly you know, greater appreciation of it maybe than some of my friends who grew up in the city only because I um, just, just I, I didn't really think about much about it, but but in hindsight now, and I remember I remember hearing quite a few descriptive names of things in local Gamilaroi language growing up as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it's not, it wasn't entirely lost, although, of course, very sadly, I'd also see the, the, the terrible effect um, of um, deprivation, um, loss of culture, um, yep. and, and other really, really serious um, issues, um, you know, incarceration, um, yeah, abuse and things like that. Um, and I saw that very much firsthand um, where I grew up. We had an Aboriginal death in custody in the town where I grew up. Um, oh, okay. And that was awkward because it was, we knew, I knew both families. I knew the police sergeant's family. And his daughter was in my class and I knew all the cousins of the young man, um, the family, who the boy who was, a young man who um who who died Eddie Murray was his name so um I knew his sisters and things so look yeah quite quite an interesting um dynamic I think uh, where I did at the time I did um so you know I think I've got a reasonable um appreciation her, her writing about I know it's Wiradjuri it's different Aboriginal country but certainly um her uh, description, um, particularly of the mission and the township and everything else, were very, um, very on point. I thought she did a really good job of, of portraying, portraying that. Mm. 
She yep. did. She did. But can I just say, Kate, your experience growing up, obviously, and mine was, it was yours was obviously a very rural experience. It was in many ways far more advanced than <laughs> I want my sort of whitewashed um, city education where there were very, very few mentions of um, Aboriginal people, our First Nations mm. people. Um, they were just, there was possibly a couple of mentions every couple, every, every year, just just sort of in the background to where we were studying, you know, Australian history. And I felt like we did Australian history every year in primary school. And then again, in, in the high school, David was given another red hot go. You know, we did it, to, we, we did it to death. But, um, and uh, I just, I just do feel very remiss. And I, and I, you know, so I, I feel like, Kate, you actually are far more advanced than, well, than, than the average uh, city-born 50-year-old. True, probably true. But on the other hand, though, too, I look at the curriculum that our children are doing today and I think, goodness me, it's um, so much more advanced than what we ever did in terms of um, oh, their yes. awareness of um, First Nations people and, and their culture and everything else. I think there's been an awful lot of good work that's been done there in has, the intervening Kate. decades because if I look similarly, I mean, you know, yeah, I, in hindsight, I can honestly say growing up where I did and the Aboriginal uh, friends that I had and people I knew, um, yeah, their lives were pretty t- pretty rough and pretty tough. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah. if you look back now in terms of the lens of culture of dispossession and the culture of the stolen generations and things like that, it's it actually does make you feel, it breaks your heart actually when you think about the impact it it's had Kate. on these people um, who, you know, who, who had lived there. For, since time immemorial, so yeah. But I like it's not it's nice to know. now to think that um, slowly but surely, you know, we're reclaiming. Well, they are reclaiming, I suppose. You know, important importance of place uh, in our in our culture. Yes, uh, in our everyday yes. life, which is really really important. And this book, I think, to your point about this book being classic, I believe it's being studied in schools. I think it's on the uh, HSC syllabus for general English. Is what I read. Um, well, Kate, I tried to confirm yes. that because I had heard it. I couldn't actually find it, but I believe that is the case. Yeah. And whether it's in New South yeah. Wales or other states, but what a fantastic, um, you know, uh, book for, for school students to read. I thought, what a great choice, and I really feel that, um, you know, this, this this book has a lot of um, a lot of voice to it. I think it does, really Kate. Enjoyed. It does. Mm. No, it's got. It's, it, to me, it's got the power to to sort of you know to change perceptions, um, to educate, to inform, but not in a way that's um, that's that's preachy or self righteous oh, no. or that actually. It, it, she just she just has a a very very clever knack, I think, for um, not dealing in caricatures. You know, for yes. developing really solid oh, solid characters completely. that, to be honest, um, that you can laugh with. Um, but yet they're also experienced a hell of a lot of. of, of tragedy and and of, of um a complex issues but they're, they're, they're i don't know you somehow you you love them and you, and you and you really feel for them but not but there's no pity either she's she's a she's a master of the uh a master of the character development yeah, i think i, I think I she's agree. done a really good exactly. job Exactly, it was very very cleverly written and something you're right it wasn't um it, it was a very good tale and it's, it's interesting to talking about the pace of the book the book's fairly you know slow paced to a degree you know you've got three intertwining stories and it runs at a fairly steady pace until towards the end there's a little bit of excitement there towards the end oh and yes I was quite clever I like I like that sort of device and one thing that I enjoyed too was the fact that um August and her auntie I think it was who go into the city to College Street to the Australian Museum we've all been there and you know sort of staring at their quite pathetic display of Aboriginal artifacts there in the in the museum and but what struck me actually this is I thought she did a good job of this too it's sort of if you like the um for example you know people um I don't know what's that passivity or the 
um, inability, I think, of the characters to speak up for themselves a little bit. And I thought it was really interesting that they went to the museum and didn't have the wherewithal or the um, feel confident in their social connection enough to speak up to the curator or to the staff member to say, oh, by the way, where do you keep your artefacts that were stolen from from my home? Yes. Um, you know, can you show me the Wiradjuri artefacts? And they didn't ask yes. that. And I thought to myself, that's interesting because if you or I went there, we'd be saying, well, excuse me, well, where, where are they? I demand to see them. Can you please show me where they would be? And yet yeah. these people feel so dispossessed and so yeah. underconfident, disempowered that she didn't have, didn't have the confidence agree, to Kate. do what yep. we would think to. And I no. thought that was really quite a poignant part of the book. It sort of stayed with me a little bit, actually, that sort of thing. So it was interesting, yeah. I agree, Kate. We would think that would be we would be well within our rights to have that conversation. We wouldn't even think twice to even discuss it with each other. We would be right in there. Exactly. So, and, and they went yeah, all that way. Went all that way to look at these you know, pathetic little artifacts, which really wasn't they didn't feel was quite a true reflection of the volume of artifacts that they would have. Uh, according mm-hmm. to them, they they understood that there was quite a large collection of work that was held at the museum and. They had a small amount on display and they just went, oh, okay, well, that's no good. And they just went. <laughs> they, left, they left and went home yeah, again. I know. And I thought, oh. I know. Oh, oh, and we're no. not talking about like a 30-minute trip. I think it was eight hours on the train. Course, that's what I mean. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, and it sort of, <laughs> they sort of came back empty-handed because they wanted to try and obviously, not without getting spoiler alert here, there was, there was a requirement for them to prove connection to the land. And, of course, these artefacts would have done so. Um, and, um, yeah, so that was just interesting. Right. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. But I think that's actually just a, a good reminder, Kate, as well, that obviously there are no spoilers here, but it is actually quite the gripping tale and the pace really does yeah. pick up towards the nicely end. Nicely so, um, And nicely so. So it is, it is like it, it's a beautiful, it's a great tale. Um, it's got some great messages. It's a powerful book. It's got the ability to, to I think, make people think, um, mm. question if there's any preconceived ideas and educate, which is what it's all about. It's a, it's, that's how we're going to make change. I think, I really mm. think it's, it's, it's a great and, vehicle for change. This book. I think, I mean, despite the, <laughs> despite, let's face it, you know, the, 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 the dark history, um, of white settlement, um, in Australia and the impact it's had on these people. Um, I think, um, as a book in and of itself, it's actually a book to be proud of. I think I think she's done a wonderful job, and it's something as Australians, I think we can all embrace this wonderful story. I think it's a contemporary tale in some ways as well, because you're talking mm. about contemporary issues. Um, mm. And um, you know, I think it's um, yeah, I, I really I, I thought it was quite um, quite interesting, and I think it, it's important for us to reflect um, and uh, but also to learn. And I think this book gives us that. Yes. Absolutely. In fact, Kate, I would say that at the end of it, I actually felt quite hopeful. I, it was to me at the end, it was quite a celebration and it was quite a hopeful book. Um, and because I, I felt that there'd been, you know, that we have made progress and that things are changing. And the fact that she documented the language I thought was, you know, like, like, like the fact that we had these three different narratives, it was very much about the future. There was a lot of hope for the future for our first nations people. I felt after reading that book, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great, it was a great read. It was a really, really yeah. great read. So Kate, yeah. what do we recommend? Yes, I would. I would. And also just because if you like words, if you like words and language, it's a good book. <laughs> you know, if yes, you're interested is, in language it? and the language that many of us, most of us have never really heard of or would be struggling to pronounce anything from. Uh, yeah, but this is an Australian language. You should be really proud of these languages. I think it's, um, yeah. you know, I always envy people from other, other cultures who can speak other languages. And, um, you know, we've got so many of these languages on our doorstep, but they, they need to be resurrected. So um, hats off to those people who, yeah. who, are, who 
who are doing that very actively. So um, I think it's, um, yeah, it's definitely, I, I think it's, it's a good read. It's a really interesting read and, um, but most importantly, it's well written, which I really appreciated. I, I really, I thought it was a book of great quality with the writing. I, I, yep. She's a very clever writer. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, that to me, it's, um, it's one thing to write a book. It's another thing to write a book really well. <laughs> And uh, oh, she's said they're two very different categories. They are, yeah. And just, you know, just, yes. and just because, you know, you might be indigenous with a good story to tell doesn't mean you can tell it very well. But honestly, yes. she's done a fantastic job. She's she can. a very talented writer. Um, and uh, to me, I, that's, I, I, it's such a, pleasure, such a pleasure to read well-crafted, well-thought-out books rather than just sort of five-minute rubbish. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I really think this is um, a book worthy of the time. And I know, Alex, hopefully one day you'll actually get a, get a chance to read it, to, t- to savour a book a little bit longer than just half a day. <laughs> Poor thing. Yes. <laughs> no, but, but to be honest, part of me actually likes it, Kate, because I do this absolute thorough immersion. I'm I'm a little bit like how Tara describes, I suppose, when she writes, but it doesn't, it doesn't obviously, I mean, hopefully I don't put on 35 kilos in half a day, but um, I just, I, I'm completely in the zone. I just have the Earl Grey's going and I'm, I, I actually quite, it's almost like a binge watch. Mm, it's like a, a read, a reading binge watch. So I actually, I actually quite like it. I actually quite like it. Now there's just one other thing I want to leave you with before we go. So in um, I mean, in, in an interview that uh, that Tara uh, participated in, she described language as connective tissue, which I thought was such a beautiful way of describing the power of language. And in in, in the um the afterward, uh, there's a an update that she's actually going to give a certain percentage of of the profits to actually um fund um local um some Australian children to actually learn some Indigenous language because she's really a big fan of the fact that she thinks that language is a great, great tool of rehabilitation. And she thinks it's a fabulous healing tool for, for, for those members, particularly of the, of the stolen generation, helping them reconnect back to their family and their land. And I just thought, you know, just another tick for me with Tara June Winch. I just thought that was um, a wonderful oh, initiative. Absolutely. No, exactly right. Her language revival, I think she's saying it's, um, was it, it's essential, um, the language re- revival in revitalization renewal and reclamation. Yep. And I think that's, uh, you know, they're, they're the three R's maybe. Yes, the three R's, my <laughs> so, friend. Um, yeah, that's right. So very clever and I think very, very overdue. Um, I think really we, um, it's probably to our great shame that we haven't um, been aware of uh, Aboriginal languages. Yep. Uh, I think I think we've had a very vague understanding of that they, they had languages, but we, um, the fact that there were no you know, books that wasn't really written down. There were, you know what I mean? It's, it's been passed. It's a verbal tradition, I believe, exactly. the original languages rather than being written. So except, except of course, um, with um, uh, more of the Aboriginal um, paintings and things like that. But in terms of actual language, you, you know, there's no Aboriginal books you can read, for example, as per the Western tradition. So um, I think we have to get over this idea that just because a language is an oral language, has an oral history, it's not language. Of course it is. Of course. And now it's being, uh, you know, taught in certain schools. I know certainly in Northern Territory, a lot of schools that are bilingual yes. in Northern Queensland and, and Northern Territory, which is fantastic. Um, but certainly I believe for the most part in New South Wales, much of the language up until now has been uh, lost or certainly, you know, um, very difficult to annotate and to collate and put together. And I think this is a wonderful um example of how, how well it can be done. Yeah, so no. it's, yeah, it's really interesting. Really, really interesting. Now, Kate, did you see what she's got cooking for her next book? 
No, tell me, do tell me. So let me tell you, So because this is completely left afield for what you'd expect from her. So she's she's writing a book called Hotel, well, I'm going to say vague, but it'd be Vagu perhaps because it's got a French <laughs> French uh, name. Um, it's a psychological thriller which is set in the Swiss Alps and it's exploring the idea of eternal return. Um, so it's going to be sort of, um, she just says you could actually finish the book and then start again at the beginning. So I'm not sure whether it's like an adult choose your own adventure. She was a little bit, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure, but all I can say is it sounds like a complete departure from the yield. Oh my God. Yes. I, I concur <laughs> with that completely. I don't think you get anything more different from, you know, outback New South Wales, the town of Prosperous, which we suspect is somewhere like Naranda Absolutely. or somewhere. That's what I thought. Um, and the Swiss Alps. I yep. know. Yep. That's a- <laughs> keeping it fresh. That's what you call having having a foot in both camps. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, my friend, so much for being a part of that. It is just so great talking books with fabulous people. So, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, look, anytime I've, you know, I genuinely enjoyed this book. It was great. So thanks for the opportunity. And I look forward to our next chat. Thank you, my friend. Lots of love. 